Well, hey, good morning. How we doing? I love it that three minutes before the service, we already had a 007 up on the screens, meaning they were swamped in the nursery. Did you guys notice that? And I never know if that's just one kid or if all of them are rebelling that we need James Bond down there, but um, <laughs> I'm glad so many of you are worshiping with us this morning. Do me a favor, grab your Bibles and buckle your seatbelts. We got a lot to do, all right? Psalm 46 is the text that we're going to be in. If you need a Bible, there's going to be ushers coming up and down the rows. Just raise your hand and they will get a Bible into your hand while you're finding Psalm 46. It's interesting, just a few years ago when my wife was in middle school, um, she was on a tour in Israel uh, with her family, with their church. And uh, the week that she was there, um, there was a bombing in Jerusalem. A tour bus had been targeted. A tour bus exploded. They were up in Galilee at that time to the north of Jerusalem. But the bomb exploded on a Wednesday. On Thursday, they were up in Galilee. On Thursday night, they checked into a hotel in a small town two miles south of the Lebanese border. It was called Kiryat Shmona. And uh, they stayed in a hotel there. Life was normal. Friday, they toured around the northern part of Israel. And when they got back to their hotel Friday night, uh, they were noticing that there was something different going on. There were a lot of cars exiting Kiryat Shmona. There was a lot of military vehicles entering the city. Uh, convoys of soldiers, artillery, tanks. Lights were set up, uh, spotlights facing the Lebanese border, actually from both sides, shining back at them and towards the border. And the hotel was almost deserted except for their group. Friday night, they stayed there. On Saturday morning, they woke to a dense fog. They were kind of socked in. A fog had rolled in over the mountains. Uh, they left the hotel. They checked out. They drove down to Tel Aviv and flew home. On their way home, the fog lifted. Israel launched an offensive as retaliation for the bombing into Lebanon. Lebanon retaliated by leveling Kiryat Shmona. The hotel that they'd stayed in the night before on Friday night was leveled by Saturday night. So, so here's a question. I'm not saying anything specifically about what happened to that hotel on that evening, but here's a question. Can our God raise a fog to protect his own? Does our God do these kind of things today? Does God heal? Does he answer prayer? Is God involved in the lives of his people? Is that true today? Okay, so as followers of Jesus, we don't just believe that Jesus showed up 2,000 years ago and did some things for us, right? We believe that Jesus and through the Holy Spirit, God is active in the affairs of men and in our lives today. We have a personal relationship. Would you agree? I believe that's very important, and Psalm 46 addresses that. It says in verse 1, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear Though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. In those three verses, the phrase that jumps out to me is that phrase, he is a very present help. It's not very helpful if God isn't present. He's a very present help. I'm reminded, the psalmist says in Psalm 139, where can I go from your presence? In Romans 8, he says, nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Matthew 28, 20, the last words that are recorded of Jesus in Matthew's gospel, it says this, it says, and behold, Jesus is speaking, behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. So when our world 
looks like it's giving way, when the mountains seem to be moving, when the storm is raging, when the bullets and rockets are flying, we will not fear. This morning's a little different. If you're uh, here as a visitor because of baby dedications and you were looking for a fluffy baby dedication message, uh, this ain't it, okay? We're going to be trying to answer three questions this morning as it relates to what we see in the news going on in Gaza and in Israel. The big idea is simply this, God's got this. God's got this. So here's the first question I want to address. What's the source of the conflict? What's the source of the conflict? And to do that, we've got to go all the way back to the beginning of the Bible, to the first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis. In Genesis 3, Adam and Eve rebel. They sin against God. And if you just go forward three more chapters to Genesis 6, listen to what's happened. The downward spiral has a result of that first sin. It says in Genesis 6, verse 5, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That's a long way to slide in three chapters. Verse 8, it says this, it says, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. What stopped the downward spiral? What stopped the decay of man's heart? Well, it was God's favor. He found, Noah found favor. That word favor in other passages is translated grace. It's interesting, in Genesis 6, verse 11, just three verses later, it says this, now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. I want you to know that word violence, in Genesis 6, 11, the Hebrew word for violence is Hamas. Now, now most would understand that the word Hamas, it's actually an acronym. It talks about the um, Islamic resistance movement. But the fact that the word violence in Genesis 6, 11 is the Hebrew word Hamas, please understand, that isn't lost on the Jewish people. Six more chapters to Genesis 12, there's a promise that is made to Abraham and Sarah that they will have a son. And Genesis 12, verse 1 reads this. It says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and from your kindred and from your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I'm going to make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And, you, and, in, and in you, all the families of the earth should be blessed. This is a three-part promise that I want us to look at for a minute. And this promise that's given in Genesis 12, it actually becomes a covenant that God makes with Abraham three chapters later in Genesis 15. But from these first three verses in Genesis 12, we see that God has promised to give Abraham a land. In Genesis 15, it says this. He says, On that day the Lord made a covenant with Abraham, saying, To your offspring I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. And by the way, we know this. God keeps his promises, right? We read in 1 Kings chapter 4, it says this, Judah and Israel were as many as the sand by the sea. They ate and drank and were happy. Verse 21, Solomon ruled over all the kingdoms from the Euphrates to the land of the Philistines. Sound familiar? And to the border of Egypt. And they brought tribute and served Solomon all the days of his life. So God fulfilled the promise that he made to 
Abraham in Genesis 15 in the days of Solomon. And you might find it interesting that from the inception of the nation of Israel until today, they've had 40 years of peace in the land. Under the reign of Solomon, over a thousand years ago. Part of the promise was land. The second is lineage. He says, I will make you a great nation. The promise to Abraham extended beyond the land. Abraham's descendants would have God's blessing. Now, some have asked, why Israel? Why did God choose Israel? Why not some other nation? Well, he answers that question in Deuteronomy 7, verse 6. It says this, The Lord your God has chosen you, speaking of Israel, to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. And then he goes on and says in verse 7, It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you. Don't miss that. And he's keeping an oath that he swore to his fathers. God keeps his promises. There was land, there was lineage, and then in the last phrase of Genesis 12, verse 3, it says this, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. There's an inference here that through the nation of Israel will come future salvation. It's interesting, if you go to the New Testament, to the Gospels, Matthew and Luke, both of those authors of those two Gospels, the first thing they do is they put in a genealogy. And the genealogy is tracing Jesus back to, you know, to the nation of Israel through that line. Why do the authors do that? Because they're establishing that Jesus is the fulfillment right at the beginning of their Gospels of the promises that were made to Abraham in Genesis 12 and Genesis 15. Fast forward a few more chapters to Genesis 22. We get this incredible foreshadowing of the gospel all the way back in the days of Abraham. In Genesis 22, verse 2, God says, take your son. He's speaking to Abraham. He says, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I shall tell you. It's interesting as that story develops, what you understand is Abraham goes, he obeys the Lord, he goes to the mountain to sacrifice his only son, the child of promise, Isaac. And as they get close to the mountain, they begin to climb the mountain, Isaac actually carries the wood that is going to be used for him to be sacrificed. It's a foreshadowing that 2,000 years later, Jesus Christ will also climb a hill with a wooden cross on his back carrying his own cross. As he is sacrificed, they get up on the mountain and God provides a ram, a substitute to be sacrificed in Isaac's place. Hebrews 11 verse 17 describes this event. It says, by faith Abraham, when he was tested, he offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your nation be named. That's the promise. And it says that Abram considered that God was able to even raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. What the author of Hebrews is saying is Abraham looked at the promises of God, of what he'd promised through the line of Isaac, and he said, if I'm going to sacrifice Isaac because God has made promises about the line that's going to come through Isaac, he must be intending to raise him from the dead. And we turn to the New Testament and we see that there is God the Father offering the Son whom he loves as a substitute in our place. And he raises him from the dead. You see the foreshadowing of the gospel through this story in Genesis 22. 
Some things about this conflict. The promise involves land, lineage, and Lord. If you're keeping notes, the conflict, it is historic. Hope you're understanding that the conflict that we've seen today in the news this morning between Gaza and Israel, it dates back 4,000 years. We can read about it in Genesis. It is familial. It is familial. In Genesis 14, or 16, verse 4, we read this. And when she, that's Hagar, let me give you a little bit of background. I'm getting ahead of myself. God has made a promise that he will give Abraham and Sarah a son. That promise takes 25 years to be completed. During the 25 years, Abraham and Sarah, as they're getting old, they grow impatient, and they take matters into their own hands. Hey, good idea or bad idea to grow impatient with God? Not, not a great idea. And so what happens, and I'll, I'll read it here. It says this. Hagar gives, or I would say Abraham at Sarah's request, says, take my handmaiden, Hagar, have a child with her, conceive a child with her because I'm barren. I can't give you any descendants. And it says in Genesis 16, verse 4, and when she, that's Hagar, saw that she was pregnant, that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress, being Sarah. And Sarah said to Abraham, may the wrong done to me be on you. Then Sarah dealt harshly with her being Hagar, and Hagar fled from her. So the situation in the household, this is a familial conflict. You've got two moms, it's going to be two babies, one baby dad, chaos. Sin always has consequences. God intervenes. We read later in Genesis 16, verse 7, it says this, the angel of the Lord, and i got to pause there, because if you remember back to our study in Elijah, if you were here, in the Old Testament, when you read those words, the angel of the Lord, it's often called a theopony. It's called a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ himself. So the angel of the Lord, Jesus, it says this, the angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water, Hagar, in the wilderness, verse 8. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarah, why, where have you come from and, why are you, and where are you going? She said, I'm fleeing from my mistress, Sarah. You can see the contempt, the tension. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. And the angel of the Lord said to her, I will sure, then the angel of the Lord said to, to Hagar, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And, and listen to verse 11. This is important. And the angel of the Lord said to her, behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael. Why? Because the Lord has listened to your affliction. And one of the things that I want you to see, the angel of the Lord, Jesus himself, comes to Hagar in the wilderness, and she says, he says, I'm going to give some promises to your offspring as well. God doesn't hate the Arab people. Why is he in the wilderness with Hagar? Out of compassion for her affliction. Sadly, today, as you look at the conflict in Gaza, less than 2% of Israelis and less than 2% of Palestinians would claim to be followers of Jesus Christ. Both need the gospel. Both sides need the save, uh, Savior. But what we need to understand, the Bible is clear. The promise given by God to Abraham in Genesis 12, that promise of land, lineage, and Lord, belongs to the descendants of Isaac. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, our God, gave the land to Israel, and we support Israel's right to occupy that land. This conflict is historic, it is familial, and it is religious. Islam teaches 
that the prophet Muhammad is a descendant also of Abraham, but through the line of Ishmael. Islam teaches that Abraham was told to go to the mountain not to sacrifice Isaac, but to sacrifice Ishmael. That Ishmael is the son of sacrifice. That Ishmael is the child of promise. Islam teaches that the promises and covenants that God made with Abraham of land, lineage, and Lord belong to the descendants of Ishmael. Muslims believe that Muhammad, not Jesus, was the descendant of Ishmael who would bless the nations. And this is important. Please hear me on this. Muhammad is viewed as a successor prophet. It's important that you understand that, that he was a successor prophet. What that means is his prophecies supersede the prophecies that went before. So Muhammad, as a successor prophet, has the ability to revise the narrative of the Old Testament. The Quran, in many instances, revises and corrects what it believes is the corruption of the Jewish Christian scriptures. This is called abrogation. Just to give you one example of this, you might find this interesting. As followers of Jesus, we look forward to the return of Christ. Amen? Do you know that so do Muslims? They believe that the end times involves the return of Christ, but it's been revised. Islam suggests that Jesus will return to abolish Christianity and to confirm the truth of Islam, that he returns as a prophet, not king of kings and lord of lords. So in contrast to Muhammad, the successor prophet, Jesus is a fulfilling God. He is fulfilling the Old Testament prophecies. There are dozens of prophecies written before Jesus' birth that he fulfilled, where he would be born, where he would spend his childhood, how he would die. Dozens of Old Testament prophecies, and he's not revising them, he's fulfilling them. And quite frankly, if I can just say this as an aside, I don't have the faith or the capacity to follow the religion of Islam. It takes way too much faith. Muhammad is a nondescript man going through life. He gets to 40 years old. He wanders out into the wilderness to pray in a cave by himself, and he comes back with a story that the angel Gabriel appeared to him, and he recites some of the things that the angel Gabriel said. He doesn't write them down because he's illiterate. He can't read or write. No witnesses, just trust me. That's the basis of Islam. Jesus is an historical fact. His life is written about through the Bible and through secular writers. You have to do something with Jesus. He was a fulfiller of prophecy, not a rewriter of the Old Testament. Matthew 5, 17, Jesus says this in his first sermon. He says, do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So, so the problem created, what does all of this have to do with Gaza today? Well, you need to understand, both the descendants of Ishmael, those who are Islam or Muslim, and the, and the descendants of Abraham, which is Christians and Jewish that would, would worship the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as their God, they both claim the land. Hamas, in its 2017 constitution, and I quote, it says, Hamas rejects any alternative to the full and complete liberation of Palestine from the river to the sea. So if you want to understand the source of the conflict that we're seeing in the news today, you've got to go all the way back to Genesis to Abraham. It's where it started. And it's interesting, in Psalm 46, just reading ahead to verses 4 through 7, it says, there is a river 
whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter. God utters his voice, the earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. I don't want to go through those verse by verse, but what I want to point out is you will see interweaved and intertwined into those verses the promises of land, lineage, and Lord. All of those promises go together. They were the covenant and promise that was given to Abraham. That's the source of the conflict. Here's question two. What comes next? I think we're wondering... Where will this lead to? Where is this going? Will it stay contained in the Middle East? Will Iran jump in? Will we have to respond? Is this going to become the next world war? I think there's a lot of tension and concern around what comes next. Let's talk about that. First, I want to discuss the current ideological spread. If you're keeping notes, good luck trying to spell ideological. And secondly, try to fit it in that blank. The current ideological spread before any bullet is ever fired before any rocket is ever launched. Ideologies are embraced, beliefs are formed, and ideas and beliefs have consequences. Put up that next map. There it is. Just to give you kind of the scope of what we're dealing with, can you guys see the little red sliver in the middle of that? That's Israel. You guys notice some green on that map? Those are Muslim countries. If you were to tour Israel, uh, the people that live there, the guides that show us around, they often make this comment. They said, listen, Israel is a beautiful home, but we live in a really tough neighborhood. And, and that's the truth. Israel's surrounded by the Arab League of Nations. Currently, 24% of the world's population is Muslim, and Muslims are the governing majority in 49 countries. Islam is growing. It is widely regarded as the world's fastest growing religion, and there's some really good reasons for that. Islam has a strong mass appeal. Let me explain why Islam is spreading so quickly. Here's one thing. It's really simple. To, to become a Muslim, they have a creed, and all you have to do is repeat that creed. That creed goes, there is no God but Allah, and Muhammad is his prophet. If you sincerely believe that and you say that in the, in, with two witnesses, you're in. You're a Muslim. It's the easiest religion to join. Not the easiest to leave. We'll get there. No deep concepts, no idea of an incarnation, a virgin birth, substitutionary atonement. You've got to know the creed. It's the easiest religion to follow. As a Muslim, there's five things required of you. You have to recite that creed I just read regularly. You pray five times a day, and you publicly gather to pray on Fridays. You give 2.5% of your income to the poor. You fast between sunrise and sundown during the month of Ramadan. And once in your lifetime, you're required to go to Saudi Arabia to make a pilgrimage to the city of Mecca. It is simple, it is easy to follow, it is moral. Please, please hear me. The, the secular decline of the Western countries and the secular decline of our culture disgusts or is a disgust to the Muslim world. 
Muslims think in collective terms. Everyone who's born in a Muslim country is Muslim. Everyone who's born in a Christian country is Christian. So when they see the secular slide in our culture, they associate that with Christianities. Either that's us or the failure of Christianity has allowed it to take place. Because Islam is fear-based, because it's work-based, Muslims tend to be very reverent, very serious about their faith. Christians, because of grace, we often take our faith for granted. And when Muslims see Christians taking grace for granted, to them it discredits our faith. Let me, let me just give you one example. If you were going to the home of someone who is Muslim and you were looking for their copy of the Quran, you would find it on a high shelf. They, they never put it below waist high because they hold that book in reverence. Hey, by the way, when we got up to sing at the start of our service, where did your Bibles go? On the floor, right? The Muslim can't comprehend that. And that's just a small visual example. What really discredits our faith is when the followers of Jesus don't live like followers of Jesus. They tend to be very devout. And here's a fourth thing. It's newer. Islam views itself as a revision of Christianity. Remember, Islam will embrace Abraham as their father. They hold in high esteem Jesus and many of the Old Testament prophets, but Muhammad being a successor prophet, he is a, a revision. He's provided a revision of Christianity. The best way I can explain this, for a Muslim to adopt Christianity would like a, be a Christian going back under Mosaic law and adopting Judaism. So it's newer. It's moral, it's easy to follow, it's simple. That said, the deficiencies in Islam are glaring. I've already talked, there's no prophetic backing or foundation to Muhammad's claims. The goal of Islam is to obey Allah, not know Allah. Allah is not a personal God. Islam is work-based and it is fear-based, and they don't even believe in a relationship with God. The idea of a loving God is foreign in Islam. They work to please Allah. That's it. There is no personal relationship. And the Quran actually mocks Judaism and Christianity for the idea that God has set his love upon his followers. Muslims do not believe in original sin. They deny that Jesus died on a cross. They do not believe in the incarnation, the resurrection, or the fact that Jesus is God. They have no eternal security. And, and as I'm saying this, you need to understand your Muslim neighbor is not the problem. Most Muslims are very peaceful. They're spreading their religion, religion as missionaries, just talking about their faith. They would denounce terrorism. They would denounce force. Typically, that is your typical Muslim. There's a word dawah on how the gospel or how their gospel would spread, but it doesn't involve violence. This is not your Muslim neighbor. They appreciate the freedom in this country to worship as they choose and hold that in high regard the same as we would. But here's the problem. At its core, Islam does not play nice with Christianity, and here's why. In Islam, the world is divided into two spheres. There's a world of peace, that is the Muslim nations, and there is a world of war. Muslims believe that the whole world was created by Allah, and it is responsibility of his followers to win it back. 
Islam is driven not just by personal conversions, but ultimately by territorial conversions. Islam claims to become the established religion in every country and to have Islamic values and law imposed on every person. According to the Quran, there are three reasons in the Islamic faith as to what justifies violence. The first one is this, if you attack a Islamic country, violence is justified. The second is, if there's a country that oppresses um, Islams and you are not able to practice being a Muslim, in those cases, violence is also justified. The third one is most interesting. If a country has come under Islamic control, it may never be allowed to revert to Muslim, to non-Muslim hands. If a country has become Muslim, the infidels can no longer, they're never allowed to take that land back. And any attempt to do so is an act of aggression against Islam and forced is justified to retake that land. The leadership, and again, it's combined. It's not just the political leaders, but the religious leaders because there isn't a separation between church and state in Muslim countries. The leaders in several Islamic nations embrace the idea that it is their destiny to bring Islamic rule to the entire world. Islam is more than just a personal religion. It is a legal, social, political, and military force for change. And this merger of religious and political ambition leads to a concept called holy war. We've seen this in many Muslim nations. Israel is referred to as little Satan. The United States is referred to as big or great Satan. Because Israel to a Muslim has retaken land that belonged to Palestine, violence is justified. This is nothing new. Mohammed Atta, the ringleader of the September 11th attacks and the hijacker of American Airlines Flight 11, which he crashed into the North Tower of the World Trade Center, he instructed each hijacker to shout, Allah Akbar, God is great, or our God is greatest, Allah Akbar, at the moment of attack, for this cry strikes fear into the hearts of unbelievers. The the Boston Marathon bomber, the one that wasn't killed, that was found hiding in a boat in someone's backyard, he, he was writing a manifesto as he was bleeding out in this boat. Listen to what he says. He wrote, I bear witness that there is no God but Allah and that Muhammad is his prophet. And then he says this. He says, know that you are fighting men who look into the barrel of your gun and they see heaven. Now, how are you going to compete with that? We are promised victory and we will surely get it. Islam teaches that there are seven heavens and at the seventh heaven, the highest heaven that is only for Allah, Muhammad, and his friends and martyrs. That creates an atmosphere where martyrism and terrorism is actually embraced. In contrast, throughout the centuries, there's been Christian martyrs as well, but Christian martyrs die for what they believe, often choosing to die for their faith rather than kill for their faith. Allah Akbar was a repeated cry on October 7th as an army from Gaza invaded Israel. Yesterday, just yesterday, the Organization of Islamic Cooperation, the OIC, 57 Muslim-majority countries and states, they met in Saudi Arabia to denounce Israel. Listen to what they say. 
And I quote, the Islamic government should designate the army of the occupying and aggressor regime, that's Israel, as a terrorist organization. We wonder how long will the international community continue to treat Israel as it is above international laws in its brutal, never-ending war on the country's indigenous population. There's a lot there. This isn't Israel's land. They don't belong here. It wasn't given to them by God. It was given to the descendants of Ishmael by God. And by the way, you can watch BBC, Fox News, CNN, or Al Jazeera and their coverage of yesterday's summit, and it has never mentioned the attacks that triggered all of this, the terrorist attacks of October 7th. Have we forgotten so quickly? What happened on October 7th was not an act of war. It was terror, sheer terror. These were young kids at a festival. They were civilians, families, the elderly, husbands and wives, children, baby, sla babies slaughtered, children, the elderly, taken hostage. This isn't war. This is terrorism, and it was executed in a way to strike fear in the populace of Israelis and, quite honestly, to everyone else in the world. And this cannot be justified by claiming Israel has oppressed the people of Gaza. There is an ideological spread. Where will this lead? It will eventually lead to worldwide spread. This conflict is not going to stay contained in the Middle East. How do we know that? Because we have a God who's in control. And he told us what was going to happen more than 2,000 years ago. All of what we're seeing going on in Israel and in Gaza today was prophesied about in the book of Revelation 2,000 years ago. And this aggression will not be limited just to the Jewish people. It'll be against anyone who claims to be a follower of Jesus. Revelation 12, 17, speaking of Satan, it says, Then the dragon, Satan, became furious with the woman, speaking of Israel, and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold the testimony of Jesus, referring to Antichrist empowered by Satan in Revelation 13, verse 7, and it was allowed to make war on the saints, get this, and to conquer them. All authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation. That does not sound like a contained Middle East problem. And all who dwell on the earth will worship it. Except for this, everyone whose name is, that has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of the life of the Lamb who was slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. Please, please hear me. Throughout the New Testament and Old Testament, there are specific markers, there are specific things, specific triggers, prophetic triggers that the followers of Jesus are told to look for to let us know that the return of Christ is right at the door. We are not seeing any of those specific triggers pulled by what we've seen so far in the Middle East. We don't see something where I can say, hey, the return of Christ is really near. But here's what I will tell you. Everything that we're seeing in the Middle East is setting the stage for a day when those triggers will be pulled. And God is on the throne, and he's got this. He is in control. So how does this end how does this end? It's interesting, Jordan's queen, Renea, she argued this week that any attempt to eradicate Hamas is pointless for Israel. Israel's in a lose-lose. Because Hamas hides among the populace, 
When civilians are killed, I would argue that Israel is in a position where every time they kill a terrorist, they're probably raising up two more. And yet they have no choice. They have to defend their civilians. They have to defend their country. And Jordan's Queen Renea says this this way. She goes, there will be a more determined and motivated group will emerge from the rubble of this current conflict. She goes on and says the root cause of this conflict is an illegal occupation and then states you can kill the combatants, you cannot kill the cause. So, so where is this all leading? What comes next? Let me explain something to you. Israel will not defeat Hamas. It will not defeat Hezbollah. It will not defeat a myriad of other hostile nations that surround it that are bent on Israel's removal and extinction. This battle will not be won through politics. It will not come to an end through political intervention. It's been raging for 4,000 years. The United States does not win this battle. And by the way, the church doesn't even win this battle. So how does it end? Who wins? What resolves it? Let me say it very simply. Jesus wins. Jesus wins this battle. Back to Isaiah, or Psalm 46. Look at verse 8. Behold, or come, behold the works of who? Of the Lord. For he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes war to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still, know that I am God. I will be exalted amongst the nations. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. In Revelation 17, we read this account. It says, they will make war on the Lamb, speaking of Jesus, and the Lamb will conquer them. Why will he do it? Well, the text tells us, for he is Lord of Lord and King of Kings, and those with him are called faithful and true. 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 8 says this, Then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. Do you want to know what ends this conflict that's been going on since Genesis? The Lord returns and says, it's done. And it's done because he's king of kings and lord of lords. That's what's coming next. How should we respond? A third question. Three things with hope. God's got this. Do you find it somewhat unbelievable? I know I do as I studied this week. Do you find it somewhat unbelievable that we can talk about what we're seeing on the news every day by going back to Genesis 6, 12, 22 and the Old Testament and then seeing it talked about more in the New Testament? Like, God's got this. He's not surprised by the conflict. He's explained where it comes from and where it's going because that's our God. And for that reason, we have a hope. And we have another hope that God is involved in our affairs on a daily basis, that he's a personal God. He's a relational God. He's a God that loves us. He is not distanced in someone that we just serve. We serve him because he demonstrated his love for us. And that love is certain because he sent his son. For this reason, we have a hope. We understand our mission. The follower of Jesus Christ is not called to embrace political domination, and we understand that it is not our role to change the direction of the river or the, or the stream of culture. We're called to teach people to swim upstream. 
We're, we're not called to fix the hole, the hole in the hull of the Titanic. That's hard to say. We're called to rescue people in the water. It's a rescue mission. We are called as missionaries to go to the ends of the, word, uh, of the earth, to every nation, tribe, and tongue, every ethnic group, and share the good news of Jesus Christ. Not so that we can create political domination, but we can allow them to understand the love and personal relationship that is ours in Christ Jesus. We have a hope. Here's the second thing, we pray. Psalm 122.6 says, pray for peace. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they be secure who love you. Pray the gospel would save Jewish people. As you turn on the news, be in prayer for what's going on over there. Pray for God's people as they try to defend their land in a seemingly hopeless situation. Pray for the people and the innocent bystanders that are caught in this conflict, be it Palestinian or Israeli. Both Palestinians and Israelis need the gospel desperately. Pray that Muslims would have their eyes open to the truth of a God who loves them. And thirdly, there's hope, we pray, and we will support. In two weeks, our church is going to take an offering on Thanksgiving weekend. It seemed appropriate. And on that week, every dollar that's given to the church will go uh, in support. We will keep none of it in-house. It'll all be just transferred. The organization that we have chosen to give it to is an organization called One for Israel, and we are specifically giving it to their Emergency Relief Fund for Israel. The purpose of this organization is they provide emergency food, essential supplies, trauma support, and funding for evacuation accommodations. One for Israel is currently serving those in crisis after the Hamas attack, and they are also uh, they're involved on the northern front and on the southern front. And what I like about One for Israel, they're the best organization that we have found within the country that was already established, was already doing the work before the crisis came. And everything they do is include a gospel initiative is completely included in what they're doing. They're not just there to provide relief; they're there to spread the gospel. And I would just ask that as a church, we would respond generously to the need. God loves Israel. It's where Jesus walked the earth. It's where Jesus will return. It's where Jerusalem will descend from heaven. It's where God will reign on this planet when Jesus is King of kings and Lord of Lord again. But how great is it that God's already laid all of this out for us? Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. Again, blown away today that um, you are not caught off guard, that you've got this. Lord, we live in troubling times. Yet at the same time, we live in amazing times because we see that you are in control. The events that you prophesied about thousands of years ago are unfolding before our eyes, and for that we are grateful. Father, teach us to be people that are devout in our faith. Teach us to be people that trust you. Don't let us waste our days. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.